0: are listening to a podcast from The National.
1: The red-sided ship stood out clearly from the deep blue waters of the Gulf of Oman. From its side, a tower of flame and thick black smoke rose up, blotting out the pale blue sky. On June 13th, two more tankers were attacked in the Gulf of Oman, just over a month after four vessels were sabotaged off the coast of the Emirati port of Fajera. Again, the US has pointed the finger at Iran. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, James Haynes-Young, and this week we're revisiting the ongoing tensions in the Middle East to ask, is Iran blowing up tankers in the Gulf, and why? Back in May, four oil tankers were struck in what the US said appears to be mines laid off the coast of the UAE. The official report into the incident is yet to be published. Then Yemeni rebels fired weaponized drones at the Saudi Arabian East-West Oil Pipeline, and a rocket landed less than a kilometre from the US Embassy in Baghdad. We talked about these incidents a couple of weeks ago on Beyond the Headlines. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, you can catch up wherever you get your podcasts. There's also a link in the show notes. In response to the incident, the US increased troop deployments, and said they believed the arrival in the region of the USS Lincoln strike group should be a significant deterrence to further attacks. But since May, things haven't exactly calmed down. In Iraq, militias have fired mortars on government military bases where US trainers are stationed, despite a demand by Prime Minister Adel Abdul Mehdi that the country shouldn't be used to stage attacks. Houthi rebels in Yemen have fired more projectiles into Saudi Arabia. In one incident, they wounded 23 civilians in the airport in Abha. Then on June 13th, The Front Altair and the Kokuka Courageous tankers were hit in the Gulf of Oman. The region is still waiting to see how the US will respond. When we talked about the first incidents last month, it still seemed that war was a remote prospect, despite the tensions. Is that still the case today? Well, both sides are saying so. On Tuesday, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Iran's President Hassan Rouhani both separately said they aren't seeking a war. But within hours, President Donald Trump called Iran a nation of terror. Neither side, it seems, is coming to the table, and neither side is backing down. It's worth noting at this point that there's been no formal investigation released into the June 13th attacks, and with Iran denying that it was involved, there is still the possibility that it wasn't them. But in the last week, we've spoken to dozens of officials, experts and analysts, and almost all of them are working under the assumption that it is Iran, if for no other reason that the US will be treating it as such, and their response, when it comes, will be directed towards Tehran. The attacks also come with all the hallmarks of Iran. We'll get a bit more into that later, but they are the most likely capable actor in the area that could have carried them out. First, though, we're going to speak to Jennifer Niana, the Nationals energy correspondent, who's been looking at the fallout of the bombings on oil markets. She'll tell us why the Gulf of Oman and the Strait of Hormuz, the narrow dog-leg channel that's the only way into and out of the Arabian Gulf, is such a vital shipping lane. A bit later, we'll also be joined by Dr. Anisa Basiri-Tabrizi, a research fellow on Middle East security at the Royal United Service Institute in London, to tell us a bit more about what the current U.S.-Iran tensions mean and what their origins are, as well as where that takes us. But first, here's Jennifer.
0: So the Middle East accounts for nearly 34% of global crude production, and the Straits of Hormuz carry around 30% um, of the crude traded globally. So that's around 18.5 million barrels per day. Uh, so it, it is a choke point. It is the biggest choke point in the world. The others are Malacca, which is 16 million barrels per day, and Suez and Sumed and Bab el Mandeb. Now the Straits of Hormuz have they, they've always been, you know, very geopolitically sensitive because you have two big producers, Saudi Saudi Arabia on one side and Iran on the other. All the big producers in the Middle East and all the big OPEC producers uh, use the straits. So you have Kuwait, Iraq, uh, they all use the Straits of Hormuz to transport oil. Um, as well as the UAE, um, so it, it is a fairly significant choke point, and it, it is one of the most critical routes for some countries uh, to transport uh, their crude uh, through, um, you know, you know, through the sea. For for instance, for Iraq and Kuwait, it is it is one of the few options they have apart from uh, land transportation. Uh, so it is a critical choke point for Middle East crude.
1: While the recent attacks are some of the most serious incidents to hit the Straits for decades, Iran has long said that it could shut down the channel if it's barred from exporting oil.
0: Iran's threats to close the Straits of Hormuz have always been viewed as an empty as empty threats. Uh, but this has changed since last year when the Trump administration um, in decided to drive down Iran's oil exports to zero. So there is a chance that Iran might engage in a more provocative way, with you know, in terms of its threats and, and actions in the Gulf.
1: Watching these events unfold, especially the dramatic images of the kokuka Courageous on fire, it can feel pretty tense. But Jennifer says that the markets haven't seemed to be spooked yet.
0: Or oh, there has been no indication in the markets and by analysts observing the markets that this will be a long-term. Uh, situation unless of course I think the rhetoric in the region and the geopolitical tensions are high but in terms of of the supply in the market the supply remains high inventories crude inventories remain. Uh, fairly high in OPEC, and the alliance that is undertaking a correction in the markets will be meeting end of the month, the beginning of next month, to discuss, uh, you know, know, drawing down of the global inventory. So the sentiment in the markets remains bearish. Crude prices have remained low. They actually fell to the lowest in six months in the beginning of June. So when these attacks happened exactly a month after the the earlier um, attacks off the coast of Fujairah and in Saudi Arabia, prices climbed up by $3.00, Uh, But it seems like a short-term spike. Uh, There's been no geopolitical risk premium price into the markets, and it's likely that this price spike will only be a short-term effect seen in the markets.
1: So how do markets price risk from thousands of miles away on stock exchanges in places like London, New York and Tokyo? The main thing, Jennifer says, is supply. Is the flow unpredictable? Is global demand not being met? And are tankers being sunk? All of these three are, for now, no. So investors seem to be saying it's business as usual. But things are vulnerable. Here's Jennifer on what the risks are.
0: Saudi Arabia has an east-west pipeline, which has approximately 5 million barrels uh, of, of transport capacity, and they can transport from the Red Sea coast if they choose to. So there, there are options uh, to use um, other means. But this was a pipeline that came under attack last month, so most infrastructure in the Middle East today seem, you know, they seem vulnerable. Uh, So the threats concerning both infrastructure and tankers, uh, you know, they've become more vulnerable than before. But there has, again, been no actual disruption to supply. So unless we see that and unless we see a full-scale escalation, it's too early to say that the markets will move or we can see $100 prices again.
1: There's also a major thing that she points out mustn't be forgotten. While the economic impact could be significant, the environmental damage of a fully laden tanker being blown up could be catastrophic for countries up and down the Arabian Gulf. Thankfully, that hasn't happened yet.
0: It's not just a you know, physical threat to tankers, but it's also an ecological and threat to the whole region and, and marine life because you know, it's, it's, it's also a significant area for fishing in, in the region as well.
1: But the environmental threat and oil security are just symptoms of a larger tension bubbling between the US and Iran. Dr. Tabrizi, the research fellow on Middle East security at the Royal United Service Institute in London, explains how posturing by both sides runs counter to what they're saying publicly.
2: In general, I think uh, what we are seeing from both sides, it's uh, a tendency to deny any kind of uh, desire to escalate towards a dire confrontation. Uh, However, each side is also taking more and more deterrent uh, moves and steps that from the other side are perceived as provocative. Um, from the Iranian side, I think uh, this has been the case uh, for the past month or so. Uh, the change completely their calculations since the beginning of May after the oil waivers uh, and the nuclear waivers were suspended. And uh, since then, we have seen actually a pretty coherent uh, approach both on the nuclear front and uh, on the regional front in terms of having calculated responses that showcase that Iran is no longer happy with the status quo and with doing nothing in response to the U.S. policy, but also in a way that wouldn't really trigger any kind of retaliation from either the U.S. or the EU. Uh, And I think what we are seeing at the moment is that uh, both sides are backing on the fact that neither side wants escalation, but at the same time the risk is that, because of the fact that some of these steps are perceived as a provocatory, uh, this would incur into some sort of miscalculation or indirect escalation that neither side really wants.
1: Early on Thursday morning, a US drone was shot down by Iran. The US says it was hit over international waters. Iran says it was over their territory. While it's unlikely that the US would start a war over a drone, after all the main advantage of an unmanned aircraft is that the pilots are not at risk, it does highlight the possibility that there could be miscalculation. In the grand scheme of things, both the US and Iran are looking at a stalemate. Neither side wants to start a conflict, but neither side wants to back down either. Dr. Tabrizi says that the Trump administration's unpredictability is keeping Iran and the EU on their toes.
2: Yeah, I think part of the reasoning in Iran is uh, to try to understand what the US would do and uh, Uh, whether uh, to its action there would be an immediate reaction or not. So all eyes in Iran are on what the U.S. uh, would do. I think part of the problem is that that kind of action is not really entirely clear, um, neither for Iran nor for the rest of the international community. The EU is in in the same boat, uh, to be frank. Um, and part of this has to do with the fact that the administration is uh, the U.S. administration is in itself divided, uh, or at least it looks like uh, it is divided on what it wants to do with regard to Iran. Uh, part of the administration seems more keen towards um, using this maximum pressure campaign to push Iran uh, towards negotiation uh, with uh, with the U.S. Uh, whereas the other part seems more keen to have uh, the Iranian economy and the regime, if you wish, collapse as a consequence of the U.S. maximum pressure strategy. And I think part of uh, the consequence of this division and confusion from the Iranian side is uh, the rejection of any kind of uh, engagement, uh, as we have seen last week with the visit of uh, the prime minister of Japan, Um, These, of course, together with the fact that uh, there is really from the Iranian perspective a lack of incentive at the moment uh, in sitting down with the US uh, to negotiate.
1: So let's take a moment to come back to the point from earlier. Why is the US so sure that Iran was behind the attacks? And then talk about what this all means. It's worth remembering that the US spends billions a year on intelligence gathering and has been analysing the damaged tankers for clues. But for those of us not privy to all that information, we can still draw a lot of conclusions although, of course, we're not in a position to be definitive. The main thing is that these attacks are consistent with the playbook that Iran has been using to project power in the region since the 1980s. Iran likes to send pointed visual messages, whether that's a picture of a particular meeting that is in some way symbolic, or a video of their latest ballistic missile test that comes at a time of specific importance. When it comes to flexing its muscles, Iran is very good at getting attention. It usually looks for something that shocks and captivates, isn't likely to provoke a major military response. After all, one of the driving forces behind what they do is preserving the Islamic Revolution, not endangering it. In their own calculations, they're a very rational actor, usually. They've also been known to take action disproportionately risky for the potential rewards. At the beginning of the year, the EU, the people that Iran was looking to to save the 2015 nuclear deal, hit the Islamic Republic with sanctions, after they uncovered a plot involving diplomats from Tehran trying to assassinate regime opponents on Dutch, Danish and French soil. Generally, however, their goal is to remain a threat, project power, disproportionate to their size and funding, and also avoid a direct conventional war that could endanger the regime and their political system. So they lurk in the shadows and wage proxy conflicts, like those in Yemen, Syria, Lebanon and Iraq.
2: I think you know the main reason for Iran to support the proxies but also to support the program of ballistic missiles uh, to support the drones program And all of these, uh, if you wish, non-conventional capabilities is uh, because of the weakness of its conventional capabilities. Iran has, since the very beginning of the war with Iraq and in the aftermath, uh, understood that its uh, um, conventional capabilities were too weak to rely on uh, for any kind of deterrent policy and therefore uh, increasingly invested more and more into the non-conventional ones.
1: This is also at the crux of why getting them to agree to stop would be so hard. For four decades, the policy has protected the regime and kept them a central power in the region. Abandoning it could be a huge risk for Tehran. Once lost, their influence and assets would be hard to recover. As the nuclear deal showed, while one US president might be supportive, the next might rip it up. So what exactly would it take for Iran to abandon its proxies?
2: I don't think we could see Iran giving up these policies. I think for them... To, to feel like uh, they don't need it anymore, they would need an environment in which they wouldn't feel uh, there is any external threat uh, to their survival or uh, any uh, possibility of a direct or indirect attack uh, to Iran or to Iranian interests in the region. I think that's very unlikely to be foreseen for the, uh, for the immediate or uh, medium term. Uh, I think part of the reasoning behind the European engagement with Iran, uh, particularly on the nuclear issue, but also more broadly, uh, was to uh, progressively move move the Iranian thinking to a stage in which engagement, uh, it's uh, in a place in which Iran doesn't really feel to have uh, the need for a hedging nuclear capability, but also it doesn't really have to rely on this unconventional capability because It feels secure enough and it feels like there is not that kind of uh, unstable and uh, threatening environment within the region from the Iranian perspective that would uh, require them to have what they perceive as a defence capability.
1: Dr Dabrizi said the 2015 nuclear deal was one of the first steps towards creating an environment where Iran could set aside its tried-and-tested proxy foreign policy and cooperate diplomatically with foreign powers. On the other side, though, Critics of the deal point out that the 2015 agreement didn't stop Iran's expansion in Syria, or its reported transfer of ballistic missile parts and expertise to the Houthi rebels in Yemen, who then fired them at Saudi Arabia. But now Iran and the US seem to be back at square one. They're no longer speaking, and Tehran is globally isolated. But the big question still remains. Where does the US go with all this?
2: I think, from a uh, US perspective, as I mentioned, it's very unclear what the end game is. It might be that the US is pushing Iran because it really wants Iran to sit down on the on the negotiating table. But we know that uh, pressure in itself is not going to be sufficient for Iran to sit uh, to the negotiating table, as we have seen in the past. Uh, if uh, the desire is collapse of the Iranian regime again, that is. Very unlikely to happen by itself. Um, so, I think what is missing from the picture at the moment is a clearer American strategy. With regard to the Iranian uh, reaction at the moment, what we have seen over the past month or so, I think the end game is, as I say, first of all, to showcase that the status quo is no longer sustainable and that just sitting down waiting for uh, pressure to take its uh impact on the Iranian economy without doing nothing is no longer an option. Instead, I think what Iran wants to do is increase its leverage uh, vis-a-vis the United States, as it did, for instance, in 2010-2012 through the nuclear program. And it's doing this from the JCPOA perspective, but also from the regional perspective.
1: guests Jennifer Niana and Dr. Anisa Basiri-Tabrizi. This is Beyond the Headlines. Subscribe to the programme by tapping the subscribe button on your podcast app. Follow more of our coverage on our website, thenational.ae. We were produced this week by Hannah Finity and Aisha Khan. I've been your host, James Haynes-Young.